Come on, so good. Hey, b- before we move on with the service, I just had such a sense as, as Donald was sharing that song with us, just what a promise that song is for all of us, but especially for some of you here tonight that might be carrying the weight of a burden, that maybe the weight of a burden you didn't, you're not choosing to carry. Because if, we, we, we know the end of the story, so we know it's glorious. But if we were to travel back in time 2,000 years ago, the circumstances of Mary's situation was, was not so worthy of celebration, right? She's a teenage girl, she's betrothed to be married, and she's pregnant. And, and this idea of Mary, did you know, is such a promise from God that when you find yourself in a season of life, where you feel like you're carrying a burden that was no fault of your own and something that you didn't necessarily choose, God always says to us, there is purpose in the place where he seats us. And, and so I just, if, if, if that's you tonight, I'm, we're not gonna ask you to do anything else. I just wanna pray for you at this moment. But if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I feel like I'm carrying a burden that I didn't choose. I just wanna pray for you. I'm just gonna invite you to stand where you are. Just invite you to stand where you are. Father, I pray for the people that are standing tonight. I I pray for the weight of the burden that they carry. And and I pray that there would be a Mary did you know anointing that would be on their life. That you would give them the endurance. That you would give them the perseverance. That you would would give them the, the strength of soul that is necessary to carry the weight of the burden that you have led them into. Because just as it was with Mary's story, so will it be for them that the end is going to be glorious, that the outcome is going to be eternally significant, that the prize, that the prize is faithfulness to our God on the paths that you lead us. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together. Come on, amen. It's good. so good. Hey, Ryan's going to throw up a slide for me. This is my favorite Christmas meme I've seen so far on social media. Eight-year-old Kevin McAllister was left at home alone for three days, and still he was able to go to church. Right? <laughs> now, now, I know it says on Sunday, and we go to church on Saturday, but I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Christmas is going to be busy for all of us. Let's make sure we get find our way into church over the weekend. So funny, right? So, so this is what I want to do. If you've got a favorite Christmas meme this month, tag me, whether on Instagram or on Facebook. And if yours is the one I picked, then you're going to get a giveaway in the service. Fair enough? So speaking of giveaways, I have a couple that I want to do right now. One is to Bria Kearney for getting inducted into the Junior National Honor Society this week. Come on, Miss Bria. Nice. Way to go. And then how about one over here? Did I, do I, is Lydia over there? Is Lydia here? Somebody got a learner's permit. I know. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. We should have given that to her parents to help pay for insurance, right? All right. Praise. So good. Oh, this is going to be a good series. 
It's going to be a series that I think is going to definitely encourage us, but I think even more so it's going to be a series that's going to challenge us, I think, in some very deep ways. So, Father, I just I, I pray for these messages, these, these three messages, this short series that I believe that you're calling us into for this Christmas season entitled Prepare the Way. And, and, and I pray, God, for, for each of us that we would give you the freedom to work the kind of changes in our lives that you know are necessary, that we might be reluctant to embrace, but we would trust your wisdom. Come on, in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. I want to begin there, Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now, you might think this is an odd place to jump into uh, for a Christmas story because this is uh, Jesus when he's uh, about 30 years old, but I think you're going to understand why in just a minute. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins, turn to God, and for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way, our title for our series, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Matthew is an interesting person for us in this series because it should give all of us hope. Matthew was a tax collector when Jesus called him, and to not to go into too much detail, but to be a tax collector and to be a Jew in the Roman occupation in Jesus' day was to be a traitor. You worked for the enemy, and you were profiting yourself at the expense of your fellow countrymen. And so Matthew here, not only was he called by Jesus to be a disciple, but he was picked to be one of the only four people to give us the story of the life of Christ, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's important for us because in this story, especially in the message that we're going to be talking tonight about sin specifically, that Matthew was a chief of sinners, and yet he found himself with a glorious purpose, and so it can be for each of us. You cannot disqualify yourself from the call of God. You can postpone it. You can run from it. But God's forgiveness always pulls us back in. Jesus is 30 years old. He's towards the end of his life. We know that his death and resurrection came when he was 33. And the story here is John the Baptist, who is his cousin, is now proclaiming that the Messiah has come. Now, this is important for us. Again, we know the end of the story, but it's important for us when we read the Bible to try to put ourselves back in the story to appreciate the significance of the moment. When John the Baptist began to prophesy, he was breaking 400 years of prophetic silence. The last person who was a genuine prophet in Israel was Malachi, and there was 400 years of prophetic silence because God was creating the biggest dramatic pause in all of history before he raised John the Baptist up to begin to prophesy again in that nation. And his message was that Jesus had come. Prepare the way. This phrase, prepare the way, would have meant something to him. For us, it's, it's, a, it's a Christmas phrase. It's a Christmas declaration. It's a, it's a, it's a Christmas contemplation for what we need to do, but in Jesus' day, it was an engineering term. Any engineers here? 
Come on. You're in the Bible right here. Because if a king, if a sovereign, wanted to go to a faraway land, oftentimes lands that had been conquered, there were no passageways that were suitable for royalty. And so they would send out scouts. They would send out engineers. They would send out work crews. For Sometimes it would take years. It would take years to build the roads and to create the path for the sovereign to visit their people. So when John the Baptist talks about preparing the way and he talks about mountains being brought low and valleys being exalted and the crooked made straight and the rough places plain, everybody in that crowd understood what John the Baptist was talking about. The the engineering expense that kings and queens would go to to access their people. Now I love that the Holy Spirit inspired John the Baptist to use this phrase Because it reminds us that reshaping the geography of the heart is hard work. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't poetic exaggeration. John the Baptist is trying to help us to understand that the work that we've got to be willing to commit ourselves to for the rest of our lives and preparing the way for Jesus to come and enter into every part of who we are will feel at times like you're trying to level a mountain. It will feel at times like you're trying to fill a valley. It will feel at times as though you're trying to make a road that is crooked, completely straight, and it will feel at times as though the surface of your heart, which is calloused and hardened, needs to be smoothed with compassion and empathy. Jesus is our king, traveling from heaven to be with us, to rescue us, and to save us. And John the Baptist is reminding us that the work of preparing our hearts for his arrival is no small task. I like the phrase that at City Life Church, we're going to challenge you to make your soul sweat. There is grace, there is mercy, there is the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit that would make transformation otherwise impossible, but you better, you better believe that the work that we are invited into is a labor. It is a labor. And I believe that John the Baptist, again inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's delivering this sermon, and he makes this declaration to prepare the way, that he gives to us the three ways that God intends us to do this work. In verse 2, he says, repent of your sins. He says, turn to God. And he says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, we're going to be talking tonight about repenting of our sins, and then next week I'm going to talk about the kingdom of heaven is near and how even though it seems as though that is a declaration, there is also an inherent command in that statement. Just to give you a glimpse of what that week's going to talk about, let me share this thought with you. Just because the kingdom of heaven is near doesn't mean you don't have to travel far to get there. And on the 28th, we're going to talk about what it means to turn to God. Repent of your sins. The kingdom of heaven is near and turn to God. These are the three things that you and I, we've got to give our life to for the rest of our days if we're going to make a way for Christ to come into every area of our hearts. Turn to God is going to be about this idea. 
Too many people looking for a church home seek a community that makes them feel right instead of one that challenges them to be righteous. And what we see in the Christmas narrative, in the Christmas story, are three epic journeys. And I believe that this was orchestrated by God for many reasons, but for one of them was to create an incredible prophetic portrait of the three things that we need to give ourselves to to prepare the way for Christ. As we're going to see tonight that Jesus and his family, as they left Israel and made their way to Egypt, this epic, this remarkable journey of the family of the Christ child, that it is a prophetic picture for us of what it means to repent of our sin. And then when we, next week, when we look at the epic journey of the Magi, we're going to see that part of the reason for that journey and who they were and the circumstances of that, that God was creating a prophetic picture, a portrait for you and I to understand what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be near. And then we're going to finish up the series as we look at the Christ child's family, Mary and Joseph, Jesus and their siblings as they begin to travel back from Egypt to Israel, that it is the prophetic picture for us of what it means to turn to God. As we study God's word, what we find is that in the stories themselves, God teaches us and he speaks to us. This series is for everyone. Even if Jesus already arrived in your life years before when you made a vow of devotion to him, all of us have areas of our lives where we are reluctant for Jesus to have full authority. And God says to you and he says to me, Prepare the way. Prepare the way. All right, somebody say escape to Egypt. Escape to Egypt. Matthew 2, 13 to 16. Matthew 2, 13 to 16. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child And his mother, the angel said, stay there until I tell you to return. Because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night Joseph left Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. We're going to get into that story next week. And so he sent soldiers, listen to what it says. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. All. Listen to what it says. The boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. We're talking hundreds of children were slain as part of the Christmas story. Often referred to as the death of the innocent. Now this is a powerful picture for us. 
Listen to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet of Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, a weeping and a great mourning, as Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Now, this is important for us, not just connecting prophetically what's happening in history with what was declared before in the Old Testament, which gives credence to the reliability and the inerrancy of Scripture, but it's also reminding us that God foresaw tragedy and chose not to stop it. Because when these prophets foretold that this was going to happen, it's God saying to you and to me, I knew it was coming, but it was necessary. See, when we read stories like this in Scripture, it gives us pause. And it should, because it was a tragedy. It was unspeakable. But the prophetic picture that God is at work telling the world about the work and the life and the ministry of Christ sometimes costs us greatly. Because what we see in the death of these children so that Jesus' family can escape and be free is one of the most powerful prophetic pictures in all of Scripture of what Jesus does for us. Because Jesus is one day going to become the innocent that will one day die for the escape from the judgment of sin that you and I are desperate to have, that we are morally bankrupt to pay on our own. And I believe that when you and I come into heaven, we're going to find that these families and these children are going to be known as heroes of heaven because they were willing to endure something even though they did not chose to carry the burden. Come on, Mary, did you know? Refusing to be comforted in their sorrow, but once they come to heaven, they now see the story they were invited to be a part of. Heroes in heaven, everyone, every mother, every child, every infant that was murdered, every sibling that wept and mourned, celebrated, I believe, even today in the heavens because their life tells the story of redemption. It is the gospel playing out in the Christmas narrative. Even the journey itself that we see of Jesus in his family speaks volume of the gospel to us. Romans 5.8 is such an impactful verse for us because it says that, that God commended his love toward us. In other translations, it says God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning that his death occurred before anyone would ever choose to embrace it, just for the hope and the possibility that salvation would be available to us with no guarantee. That God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This picture that we see in the Christmas story of Jesus being a newborn with his family, leaving Israel and going to Egypt, says something to us. Israel, in Scripture, is a picture of life with God. 
Egypt, on the other hand, is a picture for us because of what happened there in the Old Testament with the Hebrew people. It is a picture of life in bondage by sin. When Jesus' family leaves Israel and goes on the journey to Egypt, as the innocent are dying, it is the story of Romans 5.8 being played out for us. Because it's what you and I do throughout our lives. We choose to leave life that could be with God, and we choose bondage in sin, even though Jesus has already died for us to give us the gift of life here, we choose life there, but Jesus does not stop his own death because of the rebellion that's to come. He lays it down so that once we are in rebellion, there's the opportunity to return And Jesus himself, this is what's so powerful, becomes the picture of humanity even though he was without sin. He chooses in that moment to be a part of the story. Now you might say, well, he was an infant. He didn't have anything to say about it. No, 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 no. He was in heaven before he came to earth and he was with God orchestrating all of this before it happened. It was always part of the plan. Because Hebrews 4.15 tells us also something powerful. That Jesus, when he took on humanity, he set aside his glory, but he did not set aside his divinity. And when he took on humanity, he exposed himself to every vulnerability that you and I have. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way and did not sin. Now why is that important for us? Because none of us have the right to say to him, you don't know what it's like. None of us in our failings, in our temptations, in our shame, in the things that we struggle with, in the things that we say we just can't break free from, none of us have the right to say to Jesus, you don't understand, because he says to you and to me, I do understand, because I walked in it just like you do. As he journeys from Israel to Egypt, he's demonstrating to you and to me the life that we choose to live, and yet he dies as the innocent for the invitation for us to be able to come home. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says to you and to me that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do I know those? Because I used to be a Baptist. Come on. Roman road right there, baby. The escape of Jesus' family to Egypt illustrates for us the sinfulness of mankind and our need to prepare the way for Jesus in our own hearts by repenting of our sins. Let me read that again. The escape of Jesus' family to Egypt illustrates for us the sinfulness of mankind and our need to prepare the way for Jesus in our own hearts by repenting of our sins. Somebody say repentance. Luke 17, 3 reads this way. So watch yourselves, Jesus says, if another believer sins, rebuke that person, which means bring correction to that person. Then, if there is repentance, forgive. 
Let me just talk about that verse just for a minute because I want to focus in on repentance, but I don't want you to misunderstand this one verse because we understand the Bible in light of itself. And this isn't the only text in Scripture that talks about forgiveness and repentance. And if we're not careful, if this is the only one that we read, it seems to imply that I'm not expected to forgive until there's repentance. And if there's no repentance, I'm free to not forgive but that's not what the rest of the Bible teaches us. We understand this verse in light of all the other verses. And what Jesus is talking about here is that, yes, you and I always have to forgive when someone has wronged us. But the person who has wronged us does not experience the benefit of the forgiveness that we give until repentance comes. It means that they're not the benefactor of our forgiveness without their repentance. Repentance does not just mean sorrow and regret. In fact, I want to give you four things that have to happen in order for repentance in a biblical sense to take place. If you do three out of the four, you're demonstrating regret, but you're not demonstrating repentance. It takes all three. It takes all three. First, there has to be acknowledgement. You have to be willing internally. This acknowledgement is not external. We're, we're going to get to that. Acknowledgement is there has to be something inside of you that buys in to the belief and the truth that you have done something wrong. Acknowledgement means that there is something inside of you that feels and understands and accepts the wrongness of what you did. Confession is when you take the step of verbalizing and vocalizing the wrong act. Now, these four steps, they are progressive. You cannot have confession without acknowledgement. And sometimes it takes people a long time to work through these steps. I have to be willing to acknowledge that what I did was wrong. And then after I come to that place of acknowledgement, then I begin the journey of confession. Confession means telling God that I understand what I did was wrong, and it also means that you have to demonstrate the courage to go to the people who have been wronged by your actions and acknowledge to them verbally that you understand that what you did was wrong. In the book of James, we're told, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you might be healed. Confession is a powerful part of the journey of the Christian experience. There is acknowledgement, there is confession, and then there is forgiveness. There cannot be forgiveness without both confession and acknowledgement. Forgiveness begins for the person who needs the benefit of forgiveness to verbalize and vocalize the phrase, will you forgive me? See, confessing what you did as being wrong is great, but it's got to take the next step to say, will you forgive me? Because it's it's recognizing and demonstrating that you have wronged them and it humbles you to now need something from them. Because what God wants you to taste is grace. Because acknowledgement that brings confession, which leads to forgiveness, at some point has to produce resolve which is conviction and determination that I don't want to continue to do the same thing again and again and again. Resolve is an important part. 
Grace is not given to us as permission to continue to sin. Grace is given to us to inspire us to live a better life. Acknowledgement, confession, forgiveness, and resolve. And I would suggest to you that we cannot be a people of repentance unless we are a people that live and walk and practice what Jesus talks about in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my truly disciples of mine, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Right? This last part of this is one of the most commonly quoted scriptures in the Bible, right? The truth will set you free. But what they forget is the first part, and you can't have the second without the first. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let me give you three pieces here, because without these three, you will never have the other four. You have to continue, you have to know, and you have to want to be free. This idea of continuing means that you are willing to posture your life in the context of Scripture, making it the ultimate authority over your life. When Jesus says continue, one translation says abide, which means you've got to live there. It means at some point when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you've got to be willing to step in the context under the authority of Scripture. I've met very few people in my life who don't believe that the Bible is from God. Very few people in my life. But I've met a whole lot of people that aren't allowing Scripture to be the ultimate authority over their life. And if we believe this book to be the Word of God, then it certainly has earned the right to be an authority over my life. That's what it means to continue in it. That's what it means to abide in it. It means that you're willing to say, I want God's word to be the ultimate measure of everything that I am, every desire that I have, every thought that I think. And as you continue in God's word, allowing it to be the authority over you, you've got to step into what Jesus here calls knowing. Knowing means that you give your life to the practice of examining yourself in light of the scripture that is an authority over you. It means that you're constantly willing to look into this book and let this book look into you. Again, it's what James talks about, of the Bible being a mirror that you look into and not forgetting what you see when you walk away. So it's letting scripture be an authority over you, and then it's constantly examining your life in light of what scripture says about you. To continue and to know, and then Jesus says, if you're willing to do those things, there is a great and wonderful prize waiting for you, and it's called freedom. It's called freedom. It's bringing your life in alignment with Scripture. It means that you recognize that it has an authority to be over you. It means that you examine your life in light of that Scripture, and when you see that your life is not in alignment with it, that you change to be in alignment under it. And then that's when you experience something called freedom. And if you give your life to continuing and to knowing and longing for freedom, you know what will happen to you when you make mistakes? Because we're all going to make mistakes. Is that it's not such a far reach to acknowledge, confess, 
forgive, and resolve. You will not have a Luke 17, 3 heart if you don't live a John 8, 31, and 32 life. So I'm asking you again tonight, are you preparing the way for Jesus? Now you might say, Fred, I can get on board with everything that you're saying tonight. But my biggest question is sometimes it seems as though there is ambiguity when it comes to this book and how it's taught through churches today when it comes to what sin actually is. See, if we're saying, which what I'm saying, you've got to decide whether you agree with it, that John the Baptist, when he says prepare the way, he gives us three ways we're supposed to prepare the way. Three ways that we prepare our hearts for Jesus to come in and have an authority over every part of who we are. And one of them is this, this idea of repenting of our sins. You might say, Fred, I, I agree with everything that you're saying about repentance. My question is, who gets to decide what's actually right and what's wrong? Because I think we understand the big ones, but then there seems to be ambiguity on certain issues. And I want to tackle some of those tonight for you. And for some of this, this might get personal for you. St. Augustine says this, oh, this is great. An utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to eternal law is always sin. Let me give you this phrase again. An utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to eternal law is always a sin. I'm going to teach you four questions tonight that you can trust are going to serve you well as they have served me in my own examination of my own life and then in pastoring, trying to help other people come into a place of acceptance that certain practices in their own life, even though maybe they've been told it's okay, are actually not. But can I just say to you that for some of you, what you're going to find, for some of you, what you're going to find is that there could be things that you've told that are forbidden for you, but you're actually at liberty to you because you grew up in an overbearing church. The first question that you've got to be willing to ask yourself if you're going to have a serious conversation about what this book says about sin is to recognize that there is sin that is both omission and commission. Now, we get this from John 4, 17. I'm not going to read all these references tonight for the sake of time, but these notes are always online through our website. You can download the PDF. But in James 4, 17, he talks specifically about the good that you ought to do and you don't do is sin. I think so many times we think of sin as the wrong that we're not supposed to do, but sin is also the good that we are supposed to do and choose not to do it. Like getting up at 4.30 in the morning to go to port. Just saying. In fact, I teach often here, it's another sermon for another time, one of the great markers of spiritual maturity in someone's life is we're all sinners for the rest of our lives, but the scale of what comprises our sins should shift from commission to omission. Paul, at the end of his life, was still a sinner, just like the rest of us. But I think the Apostle Paul would say to you what he matured out of was commissive sin and grew into this idea 
of the absence of the good that he did not always do. Is it a sin of omission or is it a sin of commission? Because both are sins in our journeys and in our lives. The second one is this. If you've been a part of City Life Church for any amount of time, this next one is going to be familiar to you. You have to ask yourself, is this sin a question of universal morality? Is it a matter of conscience or is it a foregoing of liberty? You might say, well, Fred, where do you get that from? We get it from Romans 13, 8 through 14, and then most of Romans 14, is that Paul tackles as the church was being born, there was great discord and conflict over Jewish people that were trying to tell converts to Christianity out of secular life, they were not formerly Jews, that if they were going to be Christians, they also had to embrace all of the Mosaic law. And so part of the theme of the Pauline epistles is Paul trying to help the world to understand that you don't have to embrace Judaism to become a Christian. Universal morality means that there are things that will always be wrong for all time. The Ten Commandments is the perfect list to go to if you've got a question, what are universal moralities? That's just the beginning, but that's a great place to start. If Jesus does not come back for another 10,000 years, there will still be 10 commandments for all time, for all people. That's a universal morality. And breaking them is a sin, right? As Augustine said, utterance, deed, or desire. Now then Paul talks about this idea of a matter of conscience, meaning that you might feel that it's wrong for you to do it, but you're not free to say that it's wrong for everyone to do it. I would say that alcohol consumption is a great example for this in modern day society. There is no biblical prohibition against the consumption of alcohol. There is the biblical mandate to be law abiding, which means depending on where you live, there is an age associated with that. And there is a biblical prohibition against drunkenness and intoxication. But people who have a personal conviction that a Christian should not consume of alcohol, what I would say to you is practice that if it violates your own conscience, but don't place that on other people because you're taking something that's supposed to be a matter of conscience and making it a universal morality. Universal morality, matters of conscience. And then Paul here in these same texts talks about this idea of forgoing a liberty, which means that you might be at liberty to do it which means that it's not a more prohibition. It doesn't violate your conscience in your own personal life, but you're willing to lay down that freedom in certain settings for the sake of other people. So let's go back to alcohol consumption as an example. I don't believe that it's a universal morality. You have to decide for yourself whether it violates your conscience, but if it doesn't violate your conscience and you feel free to consume alcohol in responsible ways, if you are going out to dinner, let's say with a college friend who has recently, because of their own journey with alcoholism, chosen to stop, and let's say they just got their one-year sobriety chip, guess what you're not supposed to do when your state comes is order wine. You're tracking with me? Right? It makes sense. You're like, of course I wouldn't do that. And, and that of course you wouldn't do it is you're practicing the biblical principle of forgoing a liberty. It means you're at liberty to do it because it doesn't violate your conscience and because it's not a universal morality, but you choose not to do it for the sake of other people and for their benefit. Christianity, come on. 
Omission or commission, morality, conscience, or liberty. There is a third category of sin that the Bible talks about. Again, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, this is not going to come as a surprise to you. The fourth one, though, is a new teaching for tonight. The, the third one is this issue of time-boundness. Let me read Matthew 15, 10 to 13. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, praise the Lord, Krispy Kreme donuts, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Wait, it's, it's not the barbecue that you eat. It's the hate that you spew. The disciples came to him. Jesus, can we talk to you for a minute? Did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Now, why would they have been offended? Because every good Jewish person from the moment they were born were immersed into a way of life that was prescribed by the Mosaic Law. Now, a lot of the teachings of Christ, which we have talked about here before, was to undo and unwind what's called the tradition of the elders, meaning that things that religious leaders heaped on above and beyond what the Mosaic Law required. It means that they interpreted the Mosaic Law and they began to create other rules that people had to live by. Does Jesus undo those things? Yes, he does. And, and, and what's often used in this text is the verse that we're going to get to is that Jesus' statements is referencing the tradition of the elders, but it's not. Because what Jesus is speaking here is about dietary laws. And you know where the Jewish people got their dietary laws from? They got them from God. They got them from him. He gave it to them. Rules that they were supposed to follow. They weren't traditions that they heaped on. It was practice because of the Mosaic law that they had devoted their lives to. So, of course, the religious leaders were offended. Listen to what Jesus says here. This is such a powerful statement. This is part, I'm going to use this phrase, I'm going to explain it. This is part of our hermeneutical process. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. But God did plant the teachings of dietary restrictions. Why would Jesus say that everything his Father did not plant? That's why people use this verse to refer to tradition of elders. But the context is not traditions of the elders. The context is something that God himself did. I think this is Jesus saying to you and to me, and we find it in other places in Scripture too, where Jesus is saying not every prohibition that God established intended to be rooted for all people for all time. There are things that are time-bound. For us as a church, the prohibition against women being elders is an issue of time-boundness for us. We don't believe that God intended that to be a restriction for all people for all time. Not every church believes that. Not every church practices that interpretation of time-boundness. But I guarantee you, just about every church that you've ever been in practices the principle of time-boundness to some degree. Especially if when you walked in, all the women were not being required to wear head coverings. Because just so you know, that's a requirement that you find in New Testament. But So why have we left that behind? Because we understand that some of the prohibitions that God gave was because he knew that society was not ready for the change that was to come. Now you might say, well Fred, this makes me nervous. And what I would say to you, you should be nervous. Because there is a complexity 
to living this life out. Let me share this thought with you. If you ignore the complexity of something in an effort to simplify truth, you inevitably create the confusion you were trying to avoid. If you ignore the complexity of something in an effort to simplify truth, you inevitably create the confusion you were trying to avoid. Now, we've taught these three questions about trying to understand whether or not something is a sin or not for many years at City Life, but I'm adding a fourth one today, and the fourth one is this, is it a sin that leads to death? We're not converting to Catholicism, but the Catholic Church has championed a verse for a long time, and it's time for the Protestant Church to get on board with it. Because in 1 John 5, 17, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, talks about sin that leads to death. Now, without going into too much history, that this verse gave birth in the Catholic Church to venial sins and mortal sins. Venial is a, based on a Latin word that means pardon. Now, we don't agree as Protestants that, that the interpretation of that and the creation of those two things is the right way to approach it. So what has happened is that the Protestant church has kind of ignored this verse for far too long, and it's time to bring it back because it gives us insight into what's happening in society today. I think what John was saying here is that when you are wrestling with whether or not something qualifies to be a matter of conscience or is something that could be potentially time-bound, if the Bible lists it in a way that refers to it as a sin that leads to death, it automatically puts it into the camp of universal morality. Because when John wrote his letter, the church was struggling with this conversation about what to embrace and what to leave behind. And so here they are writing these letters to churches trying to give them wisdom for their process and for their journey. Because as we read in Paul's letters, especially to the church of Corinth, and especially when you get to Revelation and the letters that were written there to the churches, you realize that they were really struggling. And they were taking things that were supposed to be universal moralities and putting them either into the category of matter of conscience or time boundness, and they were leaving them behind. And so many of the church leaders early on were saying, hey, you, you can't do that. And their response was, hey, if you can choose what you're going to leave behind, so should we. And so these early apostles were laying down principles of biblical interpretation to protect us from being permissive, but to also protect us from being legalistic. Let me give you an example of sin that leads to death. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. This is where it can get personal. There's three other lists just like this as a reference, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. But I want to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. These are important texts for us as a church. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people. Listen to what it says. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Let me share this statement with you, and then I want to talk a little bit about some things on this list. Any sin that is ever listed in Scripture with the stated consequence of spiritual death, eternal damnation, or the loss of heaven as an inheritance can never be time-bound or a matter of conscience. Let me say that again. Any sin that is ever listed in Scripture with a stated consequence of spiritual death, eternal damnation, or loss of heaven as an inheritance can never be time-bound or a matter of conscience. That's why these lists are in Scripture. Not to demean people, not to belittle people, not to make fun of people or to be mean-spirited, but to give truth that protects us both from legalism and permissiveness to lead us into the ways of righteousness. Homosexuality is on this list, and it's part of the conversation that's happening all throughout the Christian community today. And one of the reasons why that conversation is not going very well is because churches for far too long, for far too long, stopped practicing the Ephesians 4 mandate of speaking the truth in love and embraced some broken, angry belief that being mean-spirited towards people for any reason is being Christ-like. Stop it. The church should be the most accepting, empathetic, understanding, caring place on the planet. And we've abdicated that for mean-spiritedness, which is born out of this desire to be right. We're not called to be right. We're called to be righteous. We're called to be righteous. It doesn't mean that we compromise our beliefs. It doesn't mean that we compromise truth. But if you want to have a voice in someone's life who needs to know truth, they need to know that you love them before they will let you correct them. And the church gave that up, and it breaks God's heart. It breaks his heart. It is a false choice to say we either have to be mean-spirited or permissive. That's a lie right out of the pit of hell. We're called to be loving. We're supposed to reach the world through virtue. We're supposed to reach the world through exceptional virtue. And part of that means the life that we live, but part of it also means how we treat other people. Everything on this list for us, we practice and teach here at the City Life Church. These are inconsistent with being a devoted follower of Christ. And we take them off of matters of conscience or time-boundness because Scripture speaks to them in a very unique way. Because God wants us to understand that there is sin that leads to death. And everything else that is a universal morality falls into that category. Are you preparing the way for Jesus in your life? Can I just say, if you're given to preparing the way for Jesus in your life, you make a way for Jesus in the life of everyone else. When you prepare the way for Jesus in your life, you make a way for him into the lives of others. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up.
Now, circle time tonight, we were going through the order of service. I think it was Vanessa said, you're going to get some extra time tonight. And I said, oh, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. So what do I do with all the remorse and regret I feel for the mistakes that I have made even after repenting? Because if you're like me, you've got a story in your past and there's some ugliness there. So what do I do? I'm, asking, I'm sharing a personal question. What do I do with all the remorse and regret that I feel for the mistakes that I've made after repenting? This is a statement that I felt like the Holy Spirit dropped into my heart recently. I've learned to recycle the residual refuse from my former sin to fuel the fire of purity for my future. I've learned to recycle the residual refuse from my former sin to fuel the fire of purity in my future. So let me read it for you. Learn to recycle the residual refuse from your former sin to fuel the fire of purity in your future. What does that look like? It means that when the devil reminds you of the things that you have done wrong, don't be too quick to run away from those moments because he's given you a gift. He's given you a gift. There are times when I see someone in my life that reminds me of someone else, and sometimes it is a person that I harmed in some way, and I see their face, and I see the disappointment that's on their face, and I see the hurt that I caused them, can I just tell you, that's fuel for me, because I don't want to create that expression on anybody's face again. And I've got a long list of faces in my past and in, in, in my journey, both when I wasn't a Christ follower, and even as a Christ follower, we make mistakes that cause pain and hurt in the lives of other people. And what I would say to you is, not as condemnation, not as shame, do not be too quick to forget the expression on their faces. And let it be a motivation to you for the rest of your days. The commitment that I'm trying to make as a human being is that I'm gonna create a different countenance on people's lives. Not one of regret, not one of hurt, and not one of pain, but one of grace and mercy and acceptance and love and celebration of life. Stand with me as we pray. Father, I pray that as we step into these moments of worship, I believe that you're going to show some people some faces. For some of them, it's because they're not even at acknowledgement yet, and you're trying to bring them along. And I pray that this Christmas season, that there are going to be some people that give the gift of confession to family members, to co-workers, to past relationships, and give the gift of asking for forgiveness that wrongs that have been committed. And I pray too, Father, that for all of us who call this church home or whether we're visiting from some other place, that this Christmas season, that we're going to step more fully under the authority of your word. That we're going to be open to your Holy Spirit, showing us where our life is out of alignment and giving us the courage to bring in an agreement with your eternal truth. Father, we want to prepare the way. Jesus, we want to prepare the way for you 
to have access and authority over every place in our hearts. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody say, amen. As we worship, there's people here to pray for you. And the altar's open.